You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right. Good morning, Real Life family. How are you? So glad you've joined us. I got to spend the week uh, shoveling humidity in Orlando. It was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, Here's the thing. It, It may be hot there, but you don't ever have to shovel humidity. That's nice. It's real nice. Uh, We were there at a conference all week, and and we were talking about kind of the story of what God's done here and amongst these people, and and it was just really cool to be able to testify to your faithfulness. It was really neat to be able to connect with some new people and to reconnect with some others. Um, That was a lot of fun, but it's good to be home. Uh, This is is always going to be the place to, to come back to, no matter how awesome and sunshiny and upper 70s and low 80s it was at downtown Disney. Just saying. Um, It's amazing. Uh, Good to be back, though. So we're here. uh, Just so that you know, I don't know if you saw when you came in, they're selling some burritos out there. Um, That fundraiser is there to help kids go to camp. So all the money that gets raised for that's going to sponsor kids to go to camp. And I don't know if you know this, but for me growing up in the church, camp was pivotal to my spiritual experience. Like it's one of, it was one of those anchor points that year after year after year, even as I waffled in my own spiritual commitment, camp was always this anchor point that brought me back. And so it's really important, I think, in the, in the lives of our kids to be able to do that. This is an opportunity for us to help support that. And it's going to be awesome. Um, I got to tell you, I think that Emmy is just doing an incredible job with our youth ministry. I'm, I'm serious. Like she has really got things humming and kids. And, and so here's something that I want us to do. You and me as a community. I want to, I want our church family to sponsor her to go to Turkey. And here's why. Here's why. Because investing in her education is a direct effect on our children and them understanding the Bible and them having their own relationship. And what I can tell you is Turkey for me, in, in 12 days, Turkey did more for my own spiritual well-being than all the Bible college classes that I took combined. Um, this is such a cool way. And so we need, as a church family, to raise about 4,600 bucks for her to go. And I know we can do it. I know there's people sitting in this room that could stroke that check. Um, and, but if you want to contribute to that, I don't care how much, but if you want to contribute to that, um, in, in this seat pocket in front of you, there's some tithing envelopes. Pull one of those out, put a check or some money in there, designate it, Emmy, or designate it Emmy Turkey Fund, or Thanksgiving, or some, something to designate turkey uh, on there. You drop it in the boxes on the, on the way out today. Um, I, last service I said, or you could give it to me, and apparently that's really confusing for people. So don't, don't give it to me. Put it in the boxes. Put it in the boxes there. Um, th- this would be a really cool opportunity for us to bless her and to invest in her, not only her, though, to also invest in our kids. Uh, it's a cool thing for us to do. And so I think we can do it. I think we should do it. Um, so let's make that happen. You with me? All right, so we're going to jump into this. We are on day three of the final week of Jesus's life in this Lenten series. And uh, we've, I, I, it's always important for us to remember that we cannot 
all these individual conversations that Jesus is having that we've broken out and sermonized about and all that stuff, they're part of a larger whole. And what I hope that you're catching in this sermon series is that Jesus is kind of putting the final nail in the coffin as far as God's indictment on what corrupt leadership does. And, and he's, he's been talking about the temple and he's talked about the rabbinic system over the first two days. Today, we're, we have a massive amount of text for this day just because there's so many cool, important conversations that happen. We're, gonna, we're covering today Matthew chapter 23, 24, 25, and chapter 26. Um, There is no way to deal that well. And so we're going to pull some sound bites out and kind of catch the flow of the story, the narrative of what's going on, and then uh, see if there's not some places that we can't learn land as we think about Lent. Okay? So uh, chapter 23, we're going to begin here in day three, and uh, we'll jump into some fun conversations here. Let's begin. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, that's important. And like his, just because they're Jesus followers doesn't let them out of this obligation. And you need to catch it. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. Okay, that's important. Jesus is acknowledging a corrupt temple system, and yet what he's saying to all the people and to his disciples is, you're still obligated to follow their authority. When they give you something to do, you must do it. Whether you like it or not is of no consequence. And this is really critical where we live in this politically bifurcated world Because we want to sit in the position of critic and pick apart all the people that are in our government. And I'm so tired of that conversation, to be honest. Regardless of your political affiliation, like we just want to sit back and go, well, they did this wrong, they did this wrong, they did this wrong, they did this wrong, they did this wrong. Look, what Jesus is going to say coming up here is there's going to be a reckoning But the problem with the leadership of a country being having a reckoning is that when it happens, everybody pays the price. Here's the thing. Rather than being a critic, it would be far better for us, far more Jesus-y of us, to pray for them. Because it's in your best interest if they do well. I don't want them to have to pay for their mistakes or their stupid Twitter accounts or whatever. I want them to do well. Why? Because it benefits me. Let's be honest. It benefits you and I. Like, I'm so tired of this. And the problem is there is a reckoning coming. And if we don't intercede on their behalf, we're all going to pay the price for it. That has to be our priority. We're God's people before we're Americans. And we've got to be willing to act like God's people and do business on his terms. So you have to do everything that they tell you. Because they sit in the position of authority. Now, let's read on. But do not do what they do. Doesn't mean you get to blow up your Twitter account and be an idiot. For 
for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now let's make clear, what is Jesus's problem with the Pharisees? Is it that they're doing everything wrong? He's not rejecting their system. The system was given to them by God. What he's rejecting here is how they're leveraging the system to mistreat people. And that is the problem. If we're not careful, we can start living by this assumption that Jesus just is rejecting the Jews and everything that they stand for. No, Jesus is Jewish. I don't know if you know that. Jewish, and he does very Jewish things all the time, all the time. He's in the temple. He's, when he's unclean, he goes to Bethany. He does everything that he's supposed to do. He honors the law. He's not rejecting the system. What he's rejecting is the notion that the system gives me permission to treat you poorly. That's his issue. Tie up heavy loads, but at least help people move them. Don't just leave them hanging. Now, let's read on. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. And as you're all sitting there going, what in the world is a phylactery? Uh, I want to show you some pictures. I want to show you some pictures, okay? So let's look at this. The phylactery, this is actually rooted in Deuteronomy 26, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, buying these words on your forehead and all this. So they have these boxes that actually carry the scriptures and they're bound to their, to their hands and to their forehead. And they use these straps. And, and I have so many, from the times that we've been to Israel, I have so many seared pictures in my mind of all of these, the ways that they do this. These Pharisees are looking at this going, we're going to make this strap long and it's going to be a wide strap and I'm going to wrap it around people. I'm going to be leather face, but it's going to, you know, like they do all this stuff, but not, remember this, remember this. For the Jew, the 613 rules, laws, and commands of Torah is not legalism. It's 613 ways that God said, you can show me that you love me. And so for them, they don't want to just follow the rules. They want to give their all in how they follow the rules. The problem with the Pharisees is they've moved past that to trying to make it a show so that you think I'm loving God well. It doesn't matter if you think I'm loving God well. What matters is if I'm loving God well. And God knows that. And I would almost bet that if you're loving God well, there's going to be people that are going to look around you and go, what are you doing? It doesn't matter if you think I'm loving God well. What matters is if me and God, if I'm loving God well. And what these guys are doing is they're doing all this show, not to show God that I love him, but to show you, to make you think that I'm loving God well. And that's a problem, right? I'm going to show you another picture. This is at the Western Wall. This is a common place. And, and here's the deal. I'm not beating up what they're doing, although the kissing of the Western Wall, which is a common practice, like hashtag communicable diseases. I'm just saying, 
I'm concerned about that piece, but these are, this is what they're doing. When they're talking about the tassels being long, you can see uh, on the prayer shells, the tassels that are long down on the bottom, the guy in the back there, he's got his flector on his head and he's got this tassel that that's kind of what they're talking about there. Next picture, next picture. This is a little kid that's um, uh, reading Torah and he's got his, his phylactery long. You see it bound on his hand and on his forehead. This is what Jesus is talking about. These, these are the kind of things that they're doing not to show God how much they love him, but to make you think I love God well. I'm doing it as a show, not as an act of worship. And so Jesus pronounces seven woes on the Pharisees. Now, we've already done a sermon series on the seven woes. If you want to, here's the link. You can go back and watch these and it'll throw that link up on the board. There you go. That, that'll be there. Uh, you can go back and look for the seven woes series and it'll unpack each of the seven woes, all of them, and you can get a deeper understanding on that if you're interested. What I want to do is I want to kind of surmise quickly-ish the seven woes because we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, and we're going to condense actually number five and six because they kind of talk about two sides of the same coin. So I want to um, run through these quickly. Woe number one. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter and you don't let anyone else in either. That's hard for the spiritual leaders. That's a bad one. Num next one. You travel far to win a single convert and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you. Nice light conversation. Right? Ouch. Ouch. Jesus is not pulling any punches. If he's not careful, they're going to kill him. I mean, I don't know how the story ends yet, but if he's not careful. Uh, next one. You swear by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, but it's the temple that makes the gold sacred and the altar that makes the gift sacred. What he says here is, uh, you guys, there's this there are these loopholes in the law where they're like, if you take an oath, you have to obligate yourself to it. You have to fulfill it. God can't let you out of your oath. This is a really strong theme in the Old Testament. However... If you swear by the temple, it doesn't mean anything. Like you can get out of that oath, but if you swear by the gold in the temple, well, now all of a sudden you're obligated. And what Jesus says is, what makes the gold sacred? Is it the gold or the temple that it sits in? Like this is stupid. What makes the sacrifice sacred? Is it the sacrifice or is it the altar that it sits on? Like you can't say the altar's insignificant, but the sacrifice is. But furthermore, Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter five, just let your yes be yes and your no be no, which is the bigger point here right? Next one. You obey the tithe down to your spices, but you don't obey the more important teaching of the law about justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should tithe. You should do that. But your tithe is supposed to go to help people. It's supposed to be about justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's not you appeasing God. It's not you following the rules. The rule isn't bad, but you're misusing the rule to try to gain God's approval rather than to do what you're supposed to do with it. Next one. You care about outside appearances, and this is the combination of five and six. You care about outside appearances, but inside you're full of greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and wickedness. One of the things that's been interesting in this Lenten season as I've wrestled with, you know, fasting from some level of indulgence in my life, uh, what's been interesting is how many other places, now that it's on the front of my radar, how many other places does indulgence show up in my life? So I laid it down in this one area, three areas specifically, 
but now it's showing up in all these other areas. And I'm like, man, I am a selfish son of a gun. And if I'm ever going to get past that, I've got to lay those things down. And, I, and until I lay those down, I will never be able to experience the power of resurrection in my life. And that's one of the reasons why I love Lent. We've never done it before, and I'm really falling in love with it. Because it's just revealing to me these areas that God wants to scrub out in my own life. Where I can let go of my own agenda. Which, by the way, is the indictment that Jesus has in the broader theme of the seven woes. God is saying, you guys have an agenda about how you think things are supposed to go, and it's totally self-serving. And no matter what you think or how much power you think you have, that kind of an agenda will fall apart. Next one, seven. You go on about your, how you would, you go on about how you would never have done what your ancestors did, but you're just as guilty as them and your actions show it. So these are the, this is the indictment that Jesus kind of throws on the Pharisees and it's like, ow. Then Jesus goes into one of the most confusing conversations in the entire Bible. It's all about, and it really is, it's about the end times and we're not even going to touch it. Um, here's why. We did Revelation, I ain't doing that no more. You guys in your millennial ways. But I do want to introduce it, so let's, let's read on. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. He's like, look at this temple, holy cow. And it was a spectacle. There's no doubt about it. Jesus says, do you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so here's what's, here's, like they have every reason to go, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? The stones that comprise the Temple Mount. If anyone tells you, I know how they moved them, no longer listen to them. Because archaeologists are like, ah, I don't have a clue. How they, we have some speculation, but nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows for sure how they did it. And these stones, like some of them weigh 300 plus tons. And they were quarried seven miles away. Now here's the kicker. So they moved them seven miles. That's one thing. But the, the builders didn't want the sound of hammers and chisels at the Temple Mount because it was sacred space. So they finished the stones at the quarry and then moved them seven miles to be placed in a spot at the Temple Mount. 2,000 years later, you still can't slip a credit card in the seams. It's that, I mean, it was that perfect. Like, unbelievable what they did. Unbelievable. I was standing at the, at the corner of the Temple Mount where Robinson's Arch is. If, if you're familiar with that, you know what I'm talking about. But if you're not, Google it. Um, so we're standing there and there's one stone there that is four feet wide, three feet high, 22 feet long. It's estimated to weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of 220 tons. So I'm there with Tony Johnson, who's an excavator in the local area, Moscow area. And he says to me, he says, man, that's huge. I don't have a piece of equipment that will move that rock. And I was like, big deal. You're in Moscow. <laughs> like, what, but you're not like, woo, taking the world by, you know, excavation world by storm. Like, I, was just jab I was just jabbing him. I was just jabbing him. And, he, and then he said this, which was much more impactful to me. He goes, I don't know of a piece of equipment that would move that stone. And I went, oh. So that's another thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's something different. 
That's something different. Like, it's amazing what they did. And so when Jesus is like, ah, these stones, they're going to be cast down. They're not even going to be one left on top of the other. And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? Are you even kidding me? It happened. Now, Jesus then is going to go on on this weird dialogue about how the end of times is going to happen and his second return and all this stuff. And it is so confusing. I'll let the masters figure that out. But what I can tell you is he says this. There is going to be a reckoning. The leadership of this country is going to pay a toll for the mistakes that they're making. And when it happens, head for the hills because it is going to get bad. And that's the crummy thing about leadership is that while everybody loves the idea of influence, the price that you pay when you get off of God's agenda is catastrophic, not just to you, but to everyone that you influence. And that's this, this price and privilege of leadership. What's going on here is the, the, the Pharisees are saying, we think the world functions this way. And Jesus comes in and says, no, there's only one way that this all ends. God wins and God's in control. But getting from here to there is going to be a reckoning that we're all going to wrestle and pay the price for. And it's scary, scary to think about that. So they tried to have their own agenda, but Jesus says, no, there's just one agenda. There's only one ending. There's one ending to all of this. God gets it. But there's this other guy in the story here in the same thing that's really interesting to me. And I want to I pull apart his story a little bit and see if we can't maybe relate to him as well. So I think we all struggle with the Pharisees kind of wanting things to go our own way and wanting it to go in a way that works for me, whether it works for you or not, is not as important to me. Um, but I want to I push this, this idea of what about our misguided religious agendas? Because we all have them. We all have them. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. How many of the other 12 do you know their last name? The answer is none. So why do I need to know his? Why is that so important? Well, Here's an interesting thing here. A little twist to the story that might help you give Judas a little grace. Because what we assume is Judas was like, either he was a weasel from day one, and that's how he's portrayed in the Jesus movie, right? Like, he's kind of this weasel in the background, sniveling little beady eyes. And Listen, if that was him, they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't have given him the money bag. Like, let's pick the craziest, evilest, most sniveling, awful guy. I give him the money. That's a great idea. It never would have happened. That's typecasting perfectly, right? Like, that's not who he is. But, or the other, the other assumption is, man, he was awesome. And then all of a sudden, a switch went off in his head and he turned evil. I don't think that's it either. Iscariot is a, a zealot name. 
And the reason why that matters is because the zealots were the, the class of Jews that believed that the kingdom of God was going to come by force and by military power overthrowing Rome. And so they tried to plot political assassinations all the time. This is the world that Judas comes from. This is how he thinks about the kingdom of God, that it was about power and military might and winning battles here on earth, which makes sense if he's going to make a deal with the temple. He's not so much turning evil as he is saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to force your hand. I'm going to, because when they take you and they're going to kill you, then you're going to have to rise up and win the battle. And it's the zealot way and the kingdom of God comes crashing into earth. Da, 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 and we win. Right? What Jesus says, now the kingdom of God is coming. It's going to come because I lay my life down. Which is why once Judas figures out what's going on, he gets, he's just ruined. He, he throws the money in the temple and he goes and hangs himself because he can't come to terms with what he's done. He missaw what the kingdom of God was all about and how it was going to come to earth. There's already an agenda. Let's read here. When, when the chief priest and... Judas went to the chief priest. I get paid to read. Um, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Why 30 pieces of silver? It's in the text. It's always in the text. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Another sermon for another day. From then on, Judas, uh, from then on, Judas watched, from then on, gosh, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over now, I want to read, I want to advance in the story a little bit, and I want to pick up a couple of things here about what's going on. So let's read further on in, in Matthew 26. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who's dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me, which, by the way, do a Seder meal and figure out what point you dip your hand in a bowl. It'll blow your mind. Um, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you've said so. Now let me skip ahead to a scene from the garden because G Judas believed as a zealot that the, that the kingdom of God was going to come by the sword. It was going to come by military power. So let's read on. While he's still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once Jesus, to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached out for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place. By the way, we'll pick up the story and unpack it a little bit later. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Which, by the way, is plenty of angels. <laughs> uh, 
But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And this is where we have to land. There's only one ending. It has to happen a certain way and God's got it. The question is, are you and I going to trust him enough to be willing to be faithful even when it looks bleak? Or are we going to push our own agendas? Are we going to push our own government agenda? Are we going to push our own religious agenda? Are we going to push our own definition of the kingdom? Are we going to push our own agenda? Or are we going to let God work it out and we're going to stay faithful? And we're going to pray and we're going to intercede on behalf of our country and our community and our people and all our friends, our family. We're going to do that and we're going to let God work it out. Listen, what I love about the Lenten season is this opportunity to let our agendas die so that resurrection can be even more powerful in our lives today. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. We take communion every week which is, uh, I love doing it. And so if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody, anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, you're welcome here. And we invite you to partake with us. But we want to hold the elements till the end and we'll take them all together. So while they're passing that out, I want to work through a few implications. Every time I say the word implications, I think of the song from Nacho Libre about Encarnacion. <laughs> Implicacion. I think that. Here's what implications are. Implications are things that as we work through the sermon as a sermon team, these are things that stuck out to us as like, man, this is a really important landing point that we need to take away. Here's the deal. If you have other places where you're like, man, as we went through this, the spirit kind of nudged my heart this direction or this thing really made me think and it has nothing to do with our implications, that's all good. You can have all of those and they're all worthy. These are a few things that we thought were particularly important. Number one, ultimately, even though Judas was one of the 12 He was no better than the Pharisees because of his need to push his own version of how circumstances should unfold. Judas's problem isn't that he becomes evil. Judas's problem is that he has a wrong definition of what the kingdom is all about. And that costs him. That's the thing that we've got to keep in mind. He's not evil. He's not a jerk. He's not meaner. He has a definition of how the kingdom of God is supposed to advance. It's just not God's definition. There's only one ending, and God's got it. Next implication. Lent is an invitation to let our agenda die so that resurrection can take its fullest place in our hearts and in the world. And let me tell you something. Agendas die hard. They're like um, ticks. They're really hard to kill. (laughs) But they will suck the blood out of you if you let them. You know what I'm saying? Here's the thing. I'll tell you a story. So this last week we were at this conference and my wife and I, and my wife is amazing. And she's exactly the one that the Lord wanted me to have. Um, Sometimes I don't always appreciate that as I ought. But... Uh, we were sitting there, we were talking about um, 
opportunities for influence and other places to serve in the kingdom, not like leaving here or whatever, but just kind of what's out there. And my wife makes a statement to me. And have you ever had your spouse, whether it's your husband or your wife, say something to you that is so true and so painful all at the same time? She says to me, until you lay down your pride, I don't think the Lord is going to expand your influence. I was like, Ugh, ow, hurt, true. Like Lent is this season where we have to learn to let our agenda die. And sometimes it dies painfully. And sometimes that agenda is driven by these insecurities or fears or these false beliefs that we hold to that allow us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So this is why the Lord allows you to marry somebody that's the opposite of you. Because then you get to see, they see pieces of God's work in your life that you don't get to spot on your own. Lent is this opportunity to let those agendas die so that resurrection can take its fullest place in our hearts. Last implication. There's just one ending to this. Good news. God wins. Now, the getting from here to there, I don't know how that looks, but he does, and so it doesn't really matter. The question is, do I trust him enough to work out the details? There's just one ending to this. God is still in control. We can let go of whatever causes us to want to do something other than what God is up to in the world. Why? Because he's got it. And by the way, he's not holding out on you. God has given you everything that you need to succeed. We just have to be willing to take hold of it his way. It's one of the reasons why I love communion because it's this reminder of getting to God's agenda, getting to God's best for my life will come through a dying of myself. Getting to the best that God has for me will come, the, the path of God's best for me walks through me dying to myself, to my own agenda, my ideals, my world. This is what the Christian life is all about. It reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. <clears throat> so whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, for many of us, we find ourselves on the side of the Pharisees, pushing an agenda in this world that pads our own comfort and our own safety. For some of us sitting in this room, we find ourselves on the side of Judas, trying to push religious traditions and agendas that just don't line up with what your kingdom is about. God, would you give us the courage to live like Jesus in the midst of both of those things? laying our life down and letting you work out the details of our life. Trusting that as a good God, you have good things for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, 
Visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com. 